Let me say a, a prayer for us, and we'll get started. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to just uh, gather and, and worship, uh, to, to, to sing songs of praise to you. And thank you that we get to hear a message from the Bible, that we get to hear from you uh, through your words that you've written down for us. I pray that you would just bless the words that I have to say and uh, would they sink into our hearts in whatever way that you want. Uh, it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. There comes a day in each of our lives when we have to move out, right? As you grow, as you're a kid, it's hard to imagine. Man, I can't ever imagine like leaving my parents' house. That's like a terrifying thought. But one day you get older, maybe you go to college, and that's kind of your first big step out. Uh, but then, you know, even after college, you have to perhaps get an apartment or, uh, you know, uh, move in with some friends or maybe move back home. But there does come a day that you want to kind of step out and become independent. Now, Lord willing, as a church, as Cornerstone Congregational Church, uh, this year, when we're praying for this summer, we're going to become an autonomous church. We're going to kind of move out of our parents' household. Now, our parent, as Cornerstone, is Emmanuel Church in Chelmsford. Right now, we are a ministry of Emmanuel. Uh, and, and that means that, that we share a budget, we have our kind of head leadership over there, but soon, one day, we're going to become autonomous. We're going to move out, and that means we'll have our own local leadership. We'll have elders and deacons here at Cornerstone. We'll have our own budget, our own ministries, just like if you were to kind of move out from your house, you'll have your own budget. And finally, we'll also be kind of responsible for everything that goes on over here. Kind of, we're, we're going to be the ones where we decide what's going on at the end of the day. And as we think about that, that's a lot of responsibility. Uh, maybe when you first thought about moving out from your parents' house, you thought, man, this is, this is kind of scary. It's a good thing. Our, our parent, Emmanuel Church, has always wished this for us. This is what they want to happen long term because they want to see us grow and flourish. One day, you need to move out in order to succeed, in order to, to kind of grow and flourish. And so as we look at this, we ask, well, how can we do this? How can we do this the right way? How can we do it in a successful way? How can we do it in a flourishing way? What does it mean to kind of be a success as we start our own kind of autonomous stage of, of life? We had that initial hard launch where we started our weekly service in October 2015. It's almost a year and a half later, and we're heading towards another launch, kind of a, an autonomy, an independence launch. Now, we're looking at the book of Exodus, and maybe you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with the story of the Exodus? I like to think of the book of Exodus and the story of the people of Exodus coming out of Egypt as roughly a two million person church plant. Now, we're, uh, we started with about 40 people, and we're up to, to 65, roughly 70 on a, on a good week. And imagine if we started with 2 million people. That would be just a whole different management game, right? A whole different thing to take hold of. Now, the people of Israel, the, the Hebrews... They have left Egypt, these, 200, these 2 million people. They have gone into the wilderness, and they're heading towards uh, Sinai, and they're going to eventually make it to the promised land, but really they're at the beginning stages of life. They're kind of living out of their car right now, but they're, they're heading towards what it means to be a, a successful people. 
So I can imagine them asking this same sort of question. What does it take to be a success? And today we're looking at what it takes for us to be a success, for what it takes us as a church to be a successful ministry. And I'm breaking it down into kind of three ingredients for a successful church. And, I'm, and I'm, as I've been reading uh, through Exodus, I've also been reading a book called Christ-Centered Exposition, Exalting Jesus in the Book of Exodus. And I wanted to, to read a quote from that book uh, because I'm breaking uh, the, the sermon down sort of like the author, Tony Merida, does as well. So his, his uh, quote goes a little bit like this. A healthy community of faith relies on God's power, tells others about God, and shares the work of the ministry. So that's how he breaks down our passage today. So the three ingredients are prayer, mission, and teamwork. Prayer, mission, and teamwork. So the first one is prayer. God empower us. God empower us. Now, since the Israelites have come out of Egypt, they faced what? They faced the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. They were delivered by God's grace. Uh, They faced dehydration and starvation uh, in the wilderness, in the desert. And again, they succeeded by God's grace. And now they're facing their first enemy, the Amalekites. And the question is, well, I wonder how they're going to succeed. Are they going to succeed by their own power? Or perhaps, again, they're going to succeed by God's grace. Now, where do the Amalekites come from? They're not uh, people that we hear in in our modern kind of terminology. We only find them in the Bible. In order to answer that question, I want you to think back to Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and in it we read about the forefathers, kind of the, the founding men of the Israelites, of the Hebrew people. We have Abraham, really the very first Jewish man, Isaac, and then Jacob, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is actually a twin, And when Jacob was born, uh, he had a twin brother named Esau. And when they were born, God gave a special promise to Esau and Jacob's mother. And I brought that so you could see it on the screen today. Genesis 25, 23 says this. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. Uh, One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So God's talking about kind of the beginning of two nations here, uh, two brothers. And the first brother uh, is Esau and his descendants. And in the story of the Bible, they really become the enemies of Jacob and, and Jacob's descendants. So we see kind of Jacob's family tree kind of at war with Esau's family tree. The Amalekites are one of the descendants of Esau, all right? So they're kind of related to the Israelites, but they're not really a part of the same family. And in fact, uh, they, the Amalekites, the descendants of Esau, they represent the spiritual enemies of Israel. So not just the physical, biological enemies who have made war against them, but the spiritual enemies. See, Satan is using them to attack God, to attack God's people and God's plans. See, if you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, we read about the serpent uh, and how he came into the garden and he tempted Eve. 
And, and Adam and Eve, they, they ate of the fruit and they disobeyed God. And God gave them a promise, didn't he? He said, I'm going to curse the, the descendants of the serpent. One of the, there's going to be a descendant who is going to come from Eve who's going who's to make war against the serpent and win. He's going to crush the serpent's head. That sounds pretty wild, pretty mythological. But then as you read the rest of the Bible, that tension continues throughout. That battle between the line of the serpent, the line of Satan, and the line of Eve plays out. So Jacob is the line of Eve, and, and, and say, uh, the Amalekites are the line of the serpent. So it's really a spiritual battle that is taking place in kind of the physical realm as the Amalekites are attacking Jacob. And we see this in verse uh, 15 where it says, they, they lifted up their hands against the throne of the Lord. So the Amalekites were not just against the Israelites, they were against God. They were against the God of the Israelites, they were against Yahweh. All right, so that's a lot of information. But it, it provokes us to ask a question. Well, how do you win a war that's primarily spiritual and not physical? How do you win a battle that's taking place up there and really isn't taking place here in the physical realm? Well, you pray. See, God empowers Moses through uh, Joshua through the prayers of Moses. Moses tells Joshua, his assistant, to go down to go into battle. And Moses is going to go sit on the hill and pray. He's going to lift up his hands. Now, the Bible tells us that Joshua, the son of Nun, was an attendant of Moses from a very young age. So that means Joshua has been serving Moses at about this time. He's about 20 years old, perhaps in his early 20s. And Moses is about 80 years old. So if you're going to trust anyone to win a battle for you, are you going to trust the 80-year-old who's gray-haired, and, or are you going to trust the, the 20-year-old, your, your star quarterback who's running around on the field waging war against the Amalekites? So you're going to trust your quarterback. You're going to trust Joshua. But this battle isn't physical. It's spiritual. It's taking place up there. See, the battle is not won by Joshua on the field, but by Moses on the hill. Now Moses goes up on the hill and he takes his staff with him. Now we've seen the story of kind of the staff all the way through the book of Exodus. And if you remember right, this is kind of a shepherd's staff. And so there's two parts to it. There's the straight part, the rod part, that is a sign of judgment. You know, if you have a bad sheep, you can hit the sheep. But it also has a crook on the end. It has an end where you can pull the sheep out of mud or water. That's a sign of salvation. So Moses goes up on this hill and he raises up this staff, this sign of judgment and this sign of salvation. And and it, it never says, you know, Moses was sitting there praying, but he was definitely calling on God. He was saying, God, you're the one who's fighting this war. It's a spiritual battle. You're the one who's who really matters right here. So I think it's fair to say that Moses is praying. And it's Moses who, who puts his trust in God in that, through that staff as he lifts it that really wins the day. And the story even emphasizes that it's really not Moses that wins the battle. It's God working through Moses because Moses can't even hold up his own hands. He's too weak. See, God has been winning the battle since the start for the Israelites, hasn't he? 
That same staff got lifted up during the plagues. That same staff, if you read the Exodus real closely, it got lifted up at the Red Sea. That same staff is the staff that Moses took and struck the rock at Horeb, striking God spiritually. See, God is the one who's at work here. God is at the one who's at work in this moment. God empowers Joshua through the prayers of Moses. And I believe God powers our church as we pray. Now, I remember life in my hometown. So I grew up in Estes Park in the, the mountains of Colorado. And I grew up in a town where we didn't see a lot of things happen. It was a tourist town. Uh, but I do remember a change that took place before and after September 11th. So before September 11th, we, we had a local power station, and you would have like a 4th of July car show in the parking lot. You could go over there, so some social events in the power station's parking lot. And after September 11th, after 9-11, what happened? Barricades went up. Uh, you had a fence that got put in place. And no longer could you have like a, a, a family or a social or a town gathering at the power station. Uh, one evening, uh, my youth pastor actually took uh, all the, the guys to a local power station to, uh, to like do a devotional, but it was like on this hill right next to a power station, and that was probably one of the only times that a police officer showed up at youth group, so that was kind of a, a funny experience. He, he chased us away and said, no, you're not really supposed to be here by this power station. So they were supposed to be hard to access, Right? Now, if this battle that is going on is a spiritual battle, and we are powered by God, we are empowered by God through prayer, what does Satan want to do? The enemy. He wants to chase us away from the source of power, right? There's nothing Satan can do that's more powerful than to help us to, to make us stop praying, to make us stop asking God for help. See, the closer we get to the source of power, the closer we get to God himself, the more Satan will try to chase us away. Now, I do believe in things like angels and demons. That's kind of a weird thing to say in our, our modern kind of uh, intellectual environment. But I do believe that those things take place, this thing called spiritual warfare. And as the pastor of this church, who, uh, who gets to see a lot, I can tell you that it happens right here. And I believe as... as as we get closer and closer to autonomy, we're going to see an increase in that, in, our, in the lives of our people and in our lives. So it'll be tempting to stop praying, won't it? But God, what God wants us to do is to access the power, to, to pray, to get on our knees, to ask God to win the battle for us. See, as a church, we can believe that the battle is won in the field with Joshua, or we can believe that the battle is won on the hill with Moses. If as a church we believe the battle is won on the field, we will exhaust ourselves, pouring ourselves and our time and our energy into programs, into ministries, and into busyness. And that's very tempting to do because you see immediate results, don't you? But ultimately, that's not what wins the battle. Those things matter. Like we need to gather weekly for worship. We need to have small groups so we can do discipleship and outreach events. But those things aren't the things that win the battle. God uses those. What wins the battle is God. I think God is honored when we spend time in prayer, when we go to the hill and say, God, we can't do this without you. 
How great would it be if we spent as much time in prayer as we spent in planning? That would be challenging. And I'm not saying, oh man, you have to use all your planning time for prayer now, but just as you go through your week, just shroud the church, shroud the ministries, shroud each other in prayer, pray for each other. Now, one of the ways you can do that at Cornerstone by just kind of becoming aware of, of prayer needs and what God is doing here is by signing up for the prayer network. It's an online uh, kind of email back and forth. Just uh, Karen sends out prayer requests that people ask for. I encourage you, if you're not signed up for that, sign up for it. And if you're not using it, if you're not benefiting it, if you're not submitting prayer requests to it, I encourage you to do that too so that we can be praying for you. And if you're the minister, if you're a, a team lead of one of our, our ministries, then I encourage you to send prayer requests to the prayer chain so that we as a church can be praying for your ministry because we need God's power. That, that's what will cause us to succeed. When we stop and when we pray, we remember another hill, don't we? We remember the battle was won on a hill a little over 2,000 years ago at Golgotha the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified. In our passage today, in one of the verses, verse 14, God says to the leader of the Amalekites, Amalek, he says, I'm going to blot his name out. I'm not even going to remember his name because he raised his hand against me. How often do we raise our hands against God and say, God, we don't need you. We really don't need you to be a part of our ministries. We don't need your power. Maybe you're going through life and you don't know Jesus. That's the same thing. We're just saying, God, I don't need you. Well, Jesus went to the cross to deal with that problem. Jesus went to the cross to kind of deal with this problem of people who say, God, we're against you because we don't trust you. And the amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't wage a spiritual war against you and me, even though we're the ones who are broken, even though we're the ones who sin, even though we're the ones that are against God from the time of our birth. Jesus wins the battle by going to the cross and, and taking the punishment. Jesus, Jesus, his name is the one that gets blotted out. He is forsaken on our behalf. He becomes Amalek, so that you and I, who are the Amalekites, can spend eternity with Jesus. That's how Jesus won the battle. Jesus is uh, kind of the, the Hebrew of Jesus is Joshua. See, Jesus fought our battle. <laughs> he fought our battle on a hill, and he won. How do we know this? Because we celebrate Easter every year, and we read the story of the Bible where Jesus rose from the grave. He defeated sin, he defeated death, but really he defeated my sin. He defeated your death. That's the story of the Bible. When we pray, we're saying, God, remind us of your creativity, of, of your victory, of how you win the battle. As a church, we need to pray. We need to say, God, empower us. Now, you're looking a little sleepy, so I brought a way for you to remember God empower us. I want us to just take a moment, and, and we're going to do what Moses did when he was on that hill. We're going to raise our arms, and we're going to say, God, empower us, just so you can remember this first point.
I think you can do this. This isn't too complicated. And if you don't feel comfortable saying this, just, you can just stay in your seat. That's fine. Actually, don't anyone get out of their seat, all right? <laughs> you, can, you don't have to raise your hands. But ready? If you mean it, pray it with me. One, two, three. God, empower us. Amen. So the first ingredient of a kind of healthy, successful church is prayer. And the second one is mission. So we're looking at Exodus 18, verses 1 through 12. Now, the, kind of the story of the Bible shifts very abruptly from the Amalekites from this first battle to Jethro. And it seems like, well, these two stories aren't connected at all. But actually, the Bible, Moses, the author, he very intentionally places the story of the Amalekites right next to the story of Jethro to teach us something. See, Jethro is also a foreigner like those Amalekites. He's a Midianite. And the Midianites are also relating, related to the Israelites. See, the, the ancestor, the forefathers of the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, it started with Abraham. And when God kind of revealed himself to Abraham in the very early chapters of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 12, and again in uh, the next couple chapters, he made Abraham a promise. He said, you're going to have a descendant. You're going to have an offspring. You're going to have a son. Now, this was pretty astounding. This is pretty amazing for Abraham because Abraham was a very old man and his wife was very old and she had never had a baby. But God said, that doesn't matter. I'm going to give you a son anyways. And eventually God does. But before that happens, there's a span of 25 years. I think Abraham's about 75 years old, and he's about 100 years by, by the time he gets his first son. And in those, those years, he, of course, starts to doubt. And him and his wife decide that Abraham should take a concubine. Her name is Keturah, and have children through Keturah in order to answer God's promises, in order to kind of have descendants. And the first son that Keturah has is a, is a boy named Ishmael. But that's not the only son that Abraham has with Keturah. He also has, uh, I think, five or six other sons, and one of the sons is a man named Midian. And the Midianites are the descendants of that initial son of Abraham, and yet they're not really a part of those promised people. And the Midianites, they go to live with Ishmael in the Arabian desert. And Ishmael and his brothers become the founders of the Arab tribes. See, Jethro is a foreigner. Jethro is just like uh, Esau's descendant, the, the Amalekites. They're also not really a part of God's chosen people. They're not really a part of that, that, that blessed line that, that God said, you know, through your descendants, Abraham, I'm going to bring a Savior. They're not a part of that family. See, Jethro is a foreigner. But God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your descendants to bless all the nations. You're going to be a blessing and you're going to bless other people. And so even in God's plan, when God was kind of setting aside the, the, the nation of Israel, he was making another plan to bring those foreign nations into kind of God's chosen people. See, God, was, God had plans to make a, a bigger family in Genesis chapter 12. And so here, as Jethro comes to Moses, we see the, the initial fulfillment of that plan. God begins to welcome in believers from other nations. 
If you read the New Testament, you read the story of kind of the Jewish people hearing about Jesus and then non-Jewish people, the Gentiles hearing about Jesus. Well, this doesn't start in the New Testament. This starts in the Old Testament. So Jethro, the, for, the foreigner, the Midianite, he comes up to hear Moses, to, to talk with Moses. Now Jethro met Moses when Moses uh, ran away from Egypt. So he did some, uh, he committed murder and then he ran away from Egypt. And he met Jethro in the wilderness and got married to one of his daughters, Zipporah. And in verse 1 it says, Jethro heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. See, Jethro has heard that God did these amazing things in Egypt. God sent plagues on the Egyptians. And he wants to hear more about how God brought these two million people out of slavery in Egypt. That's an amazing thing, even in today's culture. Maybe you remember this verse, Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. It says this. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's God's words to Pharaoh. God is saying to Pharaoh, I'm raising you up and then I'm bringing you down so that all the nations, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Midianites, that they can hear about me because I'm the one true God. And I want everyone to hear about me, about my name, about what I have done. See, Exodus 9, 16, it's getting fulfilled in Exodus chapter 18. It's happening. It's happening right now. See, God uses Moses to tell God's story. Now, Moses greets Jethro and he invites him into his tent. And then this is what happens. He tells him, Exodus 18, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Moses is telling his father-in-law how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, how he saved them. Last week, we, re, we kind of looked at a transition. The first 15 chapters are really talking about salvation for the Israelite people. And then the second uh, kind of half of the book is talking about sanctification, about growing in holiness. Well, Moses just tells uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, the story of what God has done to save them, to bring them out of Egypt. He's telling them a story of God's faithfulness. At Cornerstone, we tell stories of God's faithfulness, not just from the Bible, but in our everyday lives. We heard one a little bit earlier. We heard a frontline story, which is a story of kind of God working in Andy's life. We also tell faith stories. We tell conversion stories, and people initially put their faith in Jesus, and Jesus kind of introduces himself to them. We tell life event, kind of life event stories where something significant happens in your life. I'm looking forward to when we have one of those. We tell pilgrim stories. If you feel like you've been on this long journey of coming to know God and you can't remember a time when you didn't know him. We tell all sorts of stories at Cornerstone of God's faithfulness. And you can see those online. The last time we did a faith story uh, was actually in December when Joe told his faith story. And it was really cool because uh, Joe shared this, this personal experience of uh, kind of coming to know Jesus and a little bit later uh, in life. And, 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 and it was awesome because he told his friends about it. And then we had a live stream of his uh, faith story, of his testimony, and more people logged in. I think we had about a dozen people log in just to kind of hear Joe's story of what God had done. 
That's not really that different than what Moses is doing in this passage. Moses is telling a story of God's faithfulness. Now, it's not just an individual faithfulness to him. It's It's a story of God's faithfulness for two million people and how God brought these people out of Egypt. He's, he's delivered them from slavery. We at Cornerstone want to continue to tell faith stories. If you haven't told yours yet, please come talk to me. Now, when Moses shares kind of his faith story with Jethro, what happens? Verses 9 through 11 say this. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them. From the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. That's amazing that his story. So notice he didn't run away. He didn't get mad that, oh man, you're telling me about God. He was excited to hear what God had done in Jethro's life, in the life of these people. And it says that. I know Yahweh is greater than all the other gods. That's amazing because it says in verse 1 that he is a priest of the Midians. So he's, he's the head of a, of a different religion. <laughs> he's the head of people that worship idols and don't know the one true God. And suddenly, once he hears this story of what God has done, he, he says, well, I want to believe in this God. Because this God's true. This God's this God actually does things in people's lives, in the lives of all these people. See, he's, he's believing. He's, he's that, the, the, the kind of people that God wants to bless, that God wants to pull into the family of God so that it grows and grows. See, it's through this belief that, that then what happens is Jethro takes time to worship. He offers sacrifices with Moses, and then he gets to experience the presence of God himself. Verse 12 says this. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and offered and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. See, we tell people about what Jesus has done in our lives so that they can experience Jesus working in their lives. So that they can experience encounter the the living presence of God. I am not a salesman, (laughs) and most of you aren't either. We are not packaging Christianity so so that people buy into it and so that we get a bigger budget and can do more ministries. That's not what we're here for. We're here as a church so that people can meet Jesus. That's our, our mission. Our mission is to, to make mature and multiply followers of Jesus, and that's kind of a fancy way of saying we want people to encounter the living God, just like Jethro encounters the living God over a meal with Moses. In a couple weeks, we as a church are doing a really cool outreach activity. Maybe you heard it last week when Mary came down front and talked about our frontline ministry weekend. Well, it's an opportunity for God to use us to tell the story of Jesus. 
A frontline ministry weekend is different than what we normally do as a church. When we do outreach events, we do like the trunk or treat, or we do uh, the parade, and it's kind of where we all get together, and we go to a place, and we, you know, we have team spirit, we wear our Cornerstone t-shirts, and we really like advertise, hey, we're Cornerstone, you should come check us out, and if you're wearing your t-shirt tonight, good job. This Frontline Ministry Weekend is another outreach event, but it's not where we get all together. It's not where we gather, it's where we scatter. It's like what Andy was talking about, you know, in his office, having that conversation. The Frontline Ministry Weekend is March 17th, 18th, or 19th. It's your choice, because our challenge to you is to invite a friend, a coworker, or a neighbor into your home, or to, uh, to go to dinner, or to have a game night at your house, to, ha- to have a meal, and to just pray for it. That's where it starts. The spiritual battle is won through prayer. Just pray for the evening. And if God presents the opportunity, tell them the story of Jesus. Tell them the story. You can tell them about Cornerstone. You can tell them about the weekend. <laughs> We're not ashamed of it. And see what God does. This takes faith. It's hard to invite people into your lives, but remember the the story of the Bible is loving God and it's loving your neighbor. This is an opportunity for each of us to show our love for neighbor, to love people that, that live in a culture, a New England culture that isn't really all that popular, you know, inviting people into your homes, kind of breaking down those neighbor barriers. That's what we want to do. We want to demonstrate the love of Christ. He went into people's homes and ate meals with them. and They often didn't live lifestyles that agreed with Jesus' teachings. We don't want perfect people to come have kind of a perfect church service with us or perfect meals with us. We just want to get to know our neighbor, wherever they're at, wherever they are on their faith story, and love them. So if you haven't signed up for the Frontline Ministry Weekend, please talk to Mary after the service. I think there's a table set out. You can sign your name. Man, we'll hold you to that. All right, so I brought uh, God Empower Us as our first signal. You're looking a little sleepy again, so I, I brought a second one. Uh, God uh, use us is the second one. So God Empower Us, God Use Us. Would you, uh, would you say this with me? Ready? One, two, three. God Empower Us, God Use Us. All right. You're, you're nailing it so far. Good job. So our first ingredient is prayer, our second one is mission, and our third is teamwork. God help us. My, uh, our, our office administrator pointed out to me that that's kind of a, a funny thing, right? It's teams where you're like, God help us. Can you imagine what it's like to be, uh, you know, in, a, in a, a congregation of two million people? You need God's help. Moses, he's, he's the leader of these two million people, and he's trying to do the whole thing by himself. People have problems, and they come to him and say, you know, Moses, you seem to have a direct access to God. You seem to have a direct line. I think you should solve my problem. Whose dog is this? It was silly things like that all the way up to really serious, complicated issues. And Jethro sees this and says, you know, Moses, this isn't, this isn't good. You're spending all day judging the people. Nothing's getting done. See, God is going to help Moses uh, prioritize and share, share his responsibilities by prioritizing. 
See, just because God calls Moses to lead the Israelites doesn't mean he has to do it alone. Delegation is difficult but necessary. In verses 20 and 23 of chapter 18, God tells Moses, or Jethro tells Moses to do two things. 20, it says, teach them your decrees, the decrees and the instructions of God and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So what are the two things? It's teach them the law, teach them God's commands, teach them about this God that you have just gone out into the wilderness to serve. And what's the other thing? Set in charge these judges, these men of character to to be judges, to rule, to be leaders. And notice God is not interested in ability. He's interested in character. And as Moses delegates, as Moses gives some of these responsibilities to other people, it gives him the time to do what? To teach, to do the thing that matters most. See, right now, Moses is, there's, there's, there's like holes in the dam. Water is, is coming out. Moses is going around and he's trying to like patch, patch the dike. He's trying to, you know, put his finger in the different holes. And he's just finding there's too much work. And so he asks other people, come, judges, come, come, come help me uh, deal with this issue so that I can kind of reroute the waterway. So you, you change a culture by teaching them, right? By instructing them in God. Not by just fixing the problems. See, Moses' task is to do what matters most. He shares his responsibility so he can prioritize the things that God wants him to prioritize. And that, that, that message applies to us as well. God helps us work together so we can build the kingdom of Jesus. Although I, I joke about the Israelites being a mega church plant. The New Testament talks about the people, uh, uh, the church in the New Testament being the Israel of God. See, Old Testament Israel points forward to the New Testament church. And the, there are some similarities, there's parallels, because the Old Testament Israel it, it came under the leadership of one man, Right? Well, we as the church also fall under the leadership of one man. And it's not me. It's Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read the New Testament, Jesus, he kind of comes out of the the woodwork as the second Moses. There are many parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Moses. Both of them, when they were born, uh, were put in like a a basket-like structure, the the manger. You have a, a basket, They were both delivered from really bad rulers. One was Pharaoh. The other one was Herod. Uh, They both have been to Egypt. They both wandered in the wilderness, Jesus for 40 days and Moses for 40 years. See, Jesus is the second Moses. He's the second leader of a whole new people of God, the church. And just like Moses set up leadership in his time with the Israelites, Jesus sets up leadership for his church. He sets up elders and deacons. The elders are to lead and to shepherd and to pray for the church. And the the deacons are to care for the the physical and the personal needs of the people. And just like men of character uh, mattered in the Old Testament, we're looking for men of character for our New Testament elders as well. 
So we as a church, as we become autonomous, one of the first things we're going to be doing is, uh, is setting aside elders and deacons. And we're also going to be looking for men of character for elders and men and women of character for deacons. And I want to go back to the first point. The first ingredient is prayer. I, I challenge you, be praying for these upcoming leaders. Be praying that God would uh, choose the right elders for Cornerstone. We're becoming, we're moving out of the house. And that's a lot of responsibility. We need godly Christian leadership. And that we would choose the right deacons as well. I want to close by kind of teaching you the, the, the last hand motion. <laughs> so we started with our prayer, God empower us, right? God empower us. God use us. And the final one is God help us. I'm going to have everyone stand up. You all stand up with me. And for this final one, it takes a partner to do. So we're about to get real awkward and grab each other's hands. So if there's not someone in your rows, scoot in. You don't have to, like, move around. And if you're new here, you don't have to participate. <laughs> you don't have to, to know, you know, grab the hands of a, a cornerstone attender. But I want us to, to pray. You know, God use us. God empower us. God, God use us and God help us. Because we're a, we're a team. We're a church that works together. And we don't have to serve God, but we get to. And that takes a lot of prayer and a lot of loving each other. So I'm going to come down with you, and then the worship team come up right after I'm done. Um, you ready? All right, here we go. God empower us. God use us. God help us. Amen.